Welcome to the Arate Podcast. My name is Richard Triggs, and today's guest is Grant Murdoch, former partner for Ernst & Young in Queensland and experienced non-executive director. Well, I trust 2016 has started well for you and that already you're starting to experience some great outcomes and are looking forward to the year ahead. Certainly at Arata Executive, uh, we have started the year extremely busy and are very excited about the type of roles that we are currently recruiting for our clients and also the quality of candidates or guests that are coming to join me on the Arata podcast. And certainly Grant Murdoch uh, is one of the most highly regarded non-executive directors based in Brisbane. And I'm very excited about interviewing him for you today. For those people who are unfamiliar, Arate Executive is a Brisbane-based executive search company. We've been in operation now for seven years and we recruit CEOs, senior leaders and non-executive directors for our clients throughout Australia. I'd certainly welcome any inquiry as to how we may be able to help you with your executive search requirements. Anyway, let's get on now with our conversation and firstly, let me introduce to you Grant Murdoch. Grant Murdoch has over 37 years chartered accountancy experience and from 2004 to 2011, headed the corporate finance team for Ernst & Young Queensland, overseeing a doubling of revenue during that time. In addition to these responsibilities, Grant was an audit partner from 1980 to 2000. Grant is currently a non-executive director with ALS, Cardno, Ausforex, QIC, Endeavour and UQ Holdings. Sit back and enjoy this conversation with Grant Murdoch. Grant, thanks very much for uh, joining us on the Arate podcast. It's uh, excellent to have you along on what is a very warm uh, Brisbane summer day. Very um, humid. Yes, very humid. Uh, we've both been running around town with jackets <laughs> on and uh, this crazy business attire for Brisbane seems to need a bit of an update. Yes, I wondered when I came to Brisbane because I would put your, your jacket on as you leave the office, you walk through the sun, you take your jacket off when you get into the car, which is air-conditioned, you drive somewhere, you get out into the sun, you put your jacket on, you walk in you, to an air-conditioned office and you take your jacket off. It's and nuts. They, and they say it's, we were evolving. Oh, well, I think uh, it was quite a um, landmark moment when the Brisbane Club said no more ties yes. in the dining room. Yeah. I was uh, certainly a strong supporter of that. Well, look, for those people who are listening in, perhaps just to begin with, Grant, could you let us know what you're currently doing? What are your sure. professional responsibilities? Sure. So I'm on the board of, still on the board of two ASX listed companies, uh, ALS, which is a testing, inspection and certification company. It's the third largest uh, comp uh, tick company globally. Uh, we're going through some interesting issues with the resource sector at the moment, and we've just raised some more capital. Uh, Ausforex, which is a, a money transfer business, uh, it's in the, it's what I guess you'd call a disruptor. Uh, we're just in the process of receiving a takeover bid on that, so mm -hmm. it's been particularly interesting. Uh, I've just stepped down from the board of Cardno uh, with the partial takeover and the board renewal that's taking place there. And I've also just stepped down from the board or chairing the Endeavour Foundation. Mm. So I'm still currently on the Senate of the University of Queensland, mm -hmm. uh, and in that role, I'm on the board of UQ Holdings, 
Uh, I'm also on the State Council of AICD. Mm-hmm. And uh, I must admit, when I uh, read that, I'm unfamiliar with this term, the Senate of the sure. University. So what does that mean? Sure. The Senate is the governing body for the university. It's evolved from when uh, the independence of universities, so there are a number of government appointees as a funder, there are elections from staff, there are elections from undergrads and elections from graduates. The Senate itself now is probably a mixture of both a parliamentary body and a cabinet, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So its role is, is a little ill-defined and it's evolving. Uh, some of the other universities in Australia have slimmed their Senate down mm-hmm. to make it more of a board uh, functioning role. Uh, it uh, It's responsible for the overall the running of the Senate. Right. Okay. Oh, sorry, of the university. Of the university. Yeah. And made yeah. up of both the academics and also the administration? Or the... Yes. Right. Yeah. So it has uh, the executive officers on it. It has members of the academic board. Okay. Uh, and then it has people from outside the university like myself. Right. Interesting. Oh, well, that's yeah. great. Well, look, uh, certainly I'm keen to uh, talk a lot more about how you've built your board career uh, a little later in this conversation. But just to begin with, uh, I like to go right back to where it all began. So uh, tell us about uh, where you were born and your parents and your family and where you grew up, etc. Okay, well, I'm a fourth-generation farmer's son off the Canterbury Plains. Uh, I was lucky enough that when we were fencing in the winter, we could see Mount Cook in a direct line of sight. Um, I was the first one of those four generations not to go farming. Uh I went to university. Uh, qualified at the University of Canterbury, uh, started doing accounting, then travelled, went first of all, worked in South Africa, uh, then convinced a guy I could help him drive a truck and it took us six months to drive up overland, which was an interesting experience with my wife. Worked in London for another two and a half, three years, returned to Christchurch, uh, became a partner in Deloitte as it was then, uh, was a partner for 12 years. And then at that stage, deregulation had hit New Zealand in a big way. The flow of corporate activity that I worked on was going to Auckland. I worked on a strategic study for Deloitte New Zealand, and our assessment was that the larger corporates were going to go through Auckland and end up in Sydney. As a consequence of that, my wife and I took the decision that we would relocate again, and I got the opportunity to join Deloitte here in Brisbane. So I was part, continued as a partner there for eight years, making 20 in total. Uh, at that stage, I left Deloitte and formed my own uh, corporate finance company. Did that for four years. Then Ernst & Young made an offer that was too good to turn down. So I went back to the dark side, as we say, professional services. Mm-hmm. Uh, was to be there three to five years. The GFC came along, so I was there for seven years. And then when I turned 60, well, as I was turning 60, I had the opportunity to go on the ALS board, or Campbell Brothers, as it was then. So I resigned from Ernst & Young and started my professional uh, directorship career. Right. Well, that's a, a whirlwind yeah. trip yes. through a, a lot many years, and most of my conversations, that takes about half an hour to get through. <laughs> we did that in 30, 60 seconds. So uh, I'm. Uh, let's just uh, backtrack a bit on sure. that, because certainly... Um, uh, uh, I suppose, interested in fourth-generation farming mm. and then the first to make a decision to leave the traditional, um, I suppose, historical yeah. profession of the family. Well, what what um, caused you to do that? Um, I, I really couldn't say... I could say that uh, when you're out trying to mother a half-dead lamb onto a ewe and it's sleeting, that, that gave me pause to right. reflect on whether that was the career for me. 
Um, I probably I, I was doing well academically at the secondary school, uh, and I want mainly I really wanted to travel the world mm-hmm. at that point. So I was looking for a career that was portable. Globally. Okay. And uh, and so accounting in your mind was uh, you know tick the boxes in that regard. Very much so. Right. Uh, particularly in in the, well in those days, but even more so. So. I was able to go to Africa, walk the streets and get a job with Coopers and Librand then. Mm-hmm. And then when I got to London, walk the streets and get a job with Tushros. So, yeah, it was very portable. Mm-hmm. And um, I imagine also not only the decision to uh, um, move into a professional career versus farming, but also this decision to do so much travel at a younger age. That must have been quite um, uh, unusual compared to your peers, I imagine, it, it actually wasn't, okay. uh, which is surprising. Um, my observation would be a higher proportion of young Kiwis travel than young Australians. And right. There's quite a lot of young Australians travel sure. as well. No. Yeah, yeah I, the isolation factor. Um, so most of my contemporaries, whether they went into teaching, law, accounting, uh, we were able to have a fairly big reunion in London at some stage because okay. everybody had... It was a rite of passage, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, and so why the decision for, to go to Johannesburg as your first uh, significant international move? Sure. Um, mainly because I couldn't get a visa to go to the States. Okay, right. <laughs> and I wanted somewhere, a halfway house on the way to the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, I hadn't, hadn't long finished um, university, didn't have a lot of money. I mm-hmm. uh, thought the idea of working somewhere in a professional capacity on the way to get a stake. Right. Uh, as it turned out, the decision to travel overland used up that stake, so I arrived in London penniless. Right. But that was okay. And so when you're talking about travelling overland, uh, you were working uh, in an accounting role at the time? Um, before I left to go overland. So right, okay. I, I became a, a co-driver on a truck. I used my okay. farming experience to right. convince the guy that I'd be able to help him fix the truck. Uh-huh. And when you do of the... Six months travel, about three months of that, was uh, almost off-road. Right. It was so-called roads, but when you cross Africa from east to west, you actually go on dirt roads all the way. And I think a lot of us uh, hear so many horror stories about what it's like to live and work uh, there in particular. What was your experience in that regard? Um, In those days, being white helped hugely. it was interesting going from South Africa to what was then Rhodesia. We mm-hmm. actually detected a lessening of the tension, mm-hmm. which was really bizarre because Rhodesia was in a war zone. Sure. Uh, going through the rest of Black Africa was really interesting, and I guess uh, formed a lot of my values. Um, you. You could tell how long a country had been independent by the state of the infrastructure. Mm-hmm. The longer it had been independent, the less it had been spent, and the worse the infrastructure in terms of roads, hospitals, things right. like that. Yeah. So colonialism is bad, but what was coming afterwards wasn't actually that good either. Mm-hmm. So the the general solution was if you thought you knew the answer, you really didn't understand the question. Mm-hmm. Because there... And, a lot of those conditions have continued physically to deteriorate. There's been mm-hmm. some good stories in Africa, but they're few and far between, sadly. Sure. And you made a comment then, you know, it formed uh, some of your values. So what are you particularly referring to there? Um, more in terms of there are some things you can't fix. Okay. Uh, some things that the best will in the world you might want to, but uh, 
uh, I think we're seeing the same thing in the Middle East at the moment mm. where we're attempting to intervene and we're not going to solve that problem. It's mm. going to have to solve itself. And that's a rather harsh uh, thing. What we have to do is pick up the pieces as much as we can and help those that flee the area, but we're not actually going to be able to solve that particular problem. Mm, I've certainly been listening to a lot of uh, uh, podcasts and different uh, people with a very interesting and a broad range of opinions about that. Yeah. Uh, I thank my, you know, in some regards, thankfully I'm just a little recruiter sitting in Brisbane. Yeah. I can leave those decisions to much bigger brains than yes. mine. And then, uh, okay, and then off obviously to the UK. And mm-hmm. so uh, 18 months, two years in Africa and uh, and it looks like fairly similar amount of time yeah. in London. Yeah. H- how do you think uh, spending that time in these different countries and doing this travel uh, allowed you to grow and how did it affect your career moving forward? Sure. Um, I think it, it gave you confidence in yourself. Mm-hmm. So... By chance, we ended up landing in London with penniless. Um, We could have accessed our parents for money if we wanted to. But you found that if you lived on your wits and went out and got a job, you could survive. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that faith in terms of being able to find a solution for those things. Um, When I relocated from New Zealand to Australia, I'd been a partner in the firm for 12 years then. And a lot of my fellow partners were astounded at what they saw as taking such a risk, whereas I saw it more as a, a continuing period of development. What was the risk associated in their mind with that decision? Because you had a well-paid, highly respected job and you could probably stay there for the rest of your life, so right. why, were you, why were you changing? Right. Yeah, I uh, certainly uh, remember my sort of early career back in the early 90s, um, and there was very much this attitude of just mm. put your head down and don't make too much noise yeah. and job for life. Yeah. Uh, it's a very different world now, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. And I think that plays into uh, some of the directorships that I've been enjoying and seeking. Um, so Osforex is clearly one of them. Mm-hmm. And I have another one, which I can't name at the moment, which I've just been appointed to. It's another wonderful startup company. Oh, great. And and you look at, and I really enjoy those mm-hmm. because you know, they're doing things differently and the mm-hmm. The mantra I'm really taking into business at the moment is that if Uber can make money out of a $12 transaction, we need to look at what we're doing and see how we can make money off a similar transaction. And if we can't, are we going to survive? Off a similar value transaction. Similar value. It'll be relative to the type of business that you're in. but yeah. Yeah. So we need to be looking back and saying, how do we get the cost structures and the way we do business in such a way? Mm Mm-hmm. So rather than just trying to be afraid of the disruptors, mm-hmm. turn around and say, what have we got to do differently? How do we automate the processes? I mean, if you use Uber, you register without human intervention. Mm-hmm. You pay your bill without human intervention. You call the driver without human intervention and you receive your bill without human intervention. The only human intervention is when the car pulls up and you get in it and he drives you to a place and you get out. Although, from what I understand, uh, Google have got a big stake in Uber uh, yes. in preparation for driverless cars. Correct. So, so it's probably not that far away either. That's what you need to be looking at. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, look, um, uh, let's, before we get to that, uh, uh, obviously um, coming to the time that you came and you were in Brisbane and you became, uh, you joined EY and you held a very senior leadership role there mm-hmm. and you were in that role for, what, seven or eight years. Yeah. Um, I imagine uh, over that time, uh, those eight years, there would have been some 
key achievements or particular milestones that you're quite proud of in that role? What would be some examples of those? Sure. The um, I think when I first came to Brisbane and with Deloitte in '93, uh, we did a transaction, the Bullivant sale, for 130 million dollars, and that was a signature transaction for Brisbane for the year. Mm-hmm. Uh, after about two or three years at EY, we were doing the, uh, the flight centre uh, PEP transaction. Mm-hmm. We were doing Queensland Cotton, and we we're doing Trans Pacific acquisition of CleanAway all mm-hmm. at the same time. Mm-hmm. And we were doing some of the government sales of the process as well. So, being part of the maturing and final growth of the corporate finance sector in, in Queensland, mm-hmm. I found just a fascinating thing to be part of. Mm-hmm. And uh, no doubt there was uh, significant competition to uh, to pick up those pieces of work amongst yes. the uh, your uh, competitors yes. in that space. What, what do you think it was about what you and EY were offering at the time that enabled you to secure those? Um, I, th- I think it was, a bit of it was personal brand. Uh-huh. Uh, I had, I was very lucky when I came to Brisbane, I, ca- I met a person called Frank Haley uh, who you may or may not know, who mm-hmm. was a gold medal winner of the AICD. And I had an office next door to Frank, and Frank taught me how to network 101. Right. Very much so. Um, Frank uh, had a muscle uh, deterioration in his leg, and he would go to these functions in a walking stick, and you'd go with him, and he'd come back over and say, well, have you seen so-and-so and so-and-so? Right. So, oh, I've just cringed away in the corner. <laughs> he, he taught me how to how to network, how to get to know people right. and, and how to, and his, his vision was uh, reality is typically, uh, or sorry, perception is typically three years behind reality. Okay. What you really want to do is get perception ahead of reality because that'll create the opportunities. So I just explain that in a bit more sure. detail. So typically you do something and you get a reputation. Okay. Uh, if, however, you believe in yourself and you go out and talk to people and, and network with them, mm-hmm. then you can create the, or you, if you act honestly and appropriately and whatever, then you can translate that perception of what you're doing much more quickly than okay. if you just wait for the reputation to come afterwards. Okay. So it's not that you're trying to create a perception of where you'd like to be perceived three years in the future. Yeah. It is... Um, uh, taking enough action to uh, accelerate that process. Yeah, and right. and a little bit of it is where you'd like to be. I mean, mm-hmm. you've got you've got to be credible in terms of that you could be that in mm-hmm. three years because obviously if you're not, you fall away to one side and and you've just lost trust. Mm-hmm. So it's a mixture of being capable, competent, and and being able to convince people that you can do that wrong. Right. So uh, if you look back to that time and you were thinking about where you wanted to be three years from then, yeah. in your mind, Si, what, what did that look like for you then? Yeah, so I had, even from my time back in Christchurch, um, the reason I'd continued in accounting, I'd seen the senior accounting figures become non-executive directors and yes. trusted advisors. Mm-hmm. I had liked that evolution. Mm-hmm. Um, with the growing professionalism of the accounting firms and the independence meant that you were being pushed into more specialised roles, Mm -hmm. and I was struggling with that. Uh, When I came to Brisbane, I sought out the leaders in the accounting profession so I could use them as my mentors. Okay. And and the accounting firms were tending to move on the older 
accountants rather mm -hmm. than retaining them, I think, for the, the gravitas and the mm -hmm. grey hair and mm -hmm. the advice they could do. Uh, Frank obviously had survived, well, he wasn't part of that process, but he had been an accountant and an experienced company director. Mm -hmm. uh, the other person that I looked to and got a lot of help from was a guy, Thierry O'Dwyer, who oh, was yes. at VDO. Yes. Uh, and and I'm very grateful to Terry for mm -hmm. all the advice he gave me over the time. Mm -hmm. And because I had always intended or hoped to do what I'm doing now, I was working on the networking and talking to the people who would be important in that role back at that time. Mm -hmm. And that hence the you need to work on the perception the mm -hmm. whole time. You mm -hmm. need to work on your personal brand. Mm -hmm. And in a net role particularly, that take that's a slow process uh, and the appointment of a director is a slow process mm -hmm. as, as you'll be aware being sure. in the game yes so you, you do have to think longer term out and mm -hmm. you need to think a little more strategically about how you're going to position yourself mm -hmm. i think that that's exactly right and in fact uh, i'm regularly uh, counseling people uh, who have a desire to move to a portfolio career that what you need to do is to identify the boards that you hope to serve on mm -hmm. and build a relationship with the chair and other yep. board members a long time before they actually need you. Yes. Uh, so it's great to uh, to hear that uh, reiterated in a yeah. sort of a real world scenario. And the other thing I think people don't do enough of and that I learned from Frank, um, Deloitte at that time was not a strong accounting firm. Mm -hmm. It's much, much stronger now. Mm -hmm. Um, to use the fact that people would be influencers even if they weren't decision makers. So the idea of doing the hard yards of going to the functions at half past five at night when you'd really rather go home mm -hmm. and going and meeting people when you'd rather not go up and introduce yourself to someone you didn't know. Um, I worked on the basis that I couldn't necessarily get them to make a decision in terms of the work I was going to do, but I needed them to know me in such a way that they would say, oh, yeah, I've met him, yeah, he seems a reasonable guy. Right. If I could get... So I drew up a list of uh, 80 people across Brisbane that I believed were important to that process. Okay. And put the months across the top. Right. And used to tick the boxes when I had seen them. Right. And then review it and then look at where I needed to go and see some people. So if I pulled a name out of the hat, someone like a Martin Crewalt, I would have... He was on my list then. Yes. And I had the target of trying to have spoken to him at least twice to three times a year. So right. when I went to a function, I'd make sure I went over and saw him. Now Martin and I are good friends. Yeah. Um, and that's evolved out of that. He's a great guy. Sure. But, yeah, it was that disciplined approach to, to networking. I think that's fantastic. Uh, uh, I can't think of anybody else who has ever spoken to me about taking such a strategic mm. orientation. And were you even getting to the point where you were mapping where they would be so that you could be their right place, right time? No, I was more using that I d didn't know uh, you had to be more opportunistic than that. Right, yeah. But it was saying if you actually sit down and do a market appraisal mm -hmm. of what you're wanting to achieve, mm -hmm. here were the 80 people in Brisbane. Right. So... I also targeted the managing partners of the other accounting firms. Yes. Uh, and I used to get a lot of stick both at uh, Deloitte and EY because I knew the partners in the other accounting firms. Um, but I saw them as influencers as well. Right. Uh, this idea of uh, uh, rather than being competitors, they were 
uh, potential uh, conduits yeah. for opportunity for oh, you. I mean, they're good people, and, sure. and we were competitors. Yeah. Of course, we were. But mm-hmm. um, having a once again knowing them and them knowing me, I'm sure helped that mm. eventual process right. of getting known in the marketplace. Excellent. Yeah. And out of interest, why eighty and not a hundred or sixty? I just came. I went through and listed out everybody who I thought was right. uh, important and came in, and it was around about eighty. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's great. And so. Um, uh, at what point did you really start to get this um, desire to build the portfolio to the point where you would relinquish your professional responsibilities in terms of your full-time job? Um, probably just before the GFC. Right. <laughs> so then I deferred it during the GFC. Yeah. Uh, then the I got the opportunity with ALS. Mm-hmm. So I decided then I was going to jump and, and go that whole way. Right. One of the problems of being partner in one of the accounting firms or legal firms is that you are incredibly well paid mm-hmm. and so therefore you've got to take the step that you're sure. going to be sacrificing income to go through into this career. Right. And I, I imagine that uh, it would be unlikely a non-executive director, even with a full portfolio, yeah. would be able to match the sort of income that a, a partner in a, a firm would have earned. That's correct. Mm. Yeah. So it's more... Uh, a lifestyle choice for the future forever yeah and yes it's a working your way through to to get into that position and then enjoying hopefully enjoying the fruits of one the experience and skill base you've learned mm-hmm. yeah and then saying okay I've, I need to move on um, otherwise I'm going to be trapped here mm-hmm. okay so you're at EY you've mapped your 80 people you're out there you're a um, uh, being quite conscious about making sure that you're uh, feeding and watering these relationships mm-hmm. over this period of time. Um, you step into your first uh, significant board role with mm-hmm. ALS, um, Campbell Brothers at the time it would mm-hmm. have been, yeah? Yes. And, uh, and so how have things sort of uh, rolled out since then? Um, I think I've been incredibly lucky since then because uh, you're approached to go on a board now. You don't mm-hmm. approach the board and say, I'd like to go on it. Mm-hmm. Um and so the, the different boards have come out of different connections mm-hmm. and, and different things. The, the Ausforex one was really interesting. Uh, that came out of a reference from uh, somebody from Macquarie who was based in Melbourne, mm-hmm. who I'd worked on the Trans-Pacific uh, when it was suspended, and the recapitalization of that, which was one of the hardest transactions I've ever had to do. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, we formed a relationship then um, when Osforex was going through a dual track IPO and trade sale, they were looking for someone who could get up to speed very quickly, mm-hmm. even though the due diligence had all been done. And um, he put my name forward. Mm-hmm. And do you think it's this transaction experience which has been your unique selling point? Um, it's created a distinct personal brand for you in relation to these board opportunities? I think so, yes. Right. Because there's... Um, Dare I say it, a, a lot of people out there with financial reporting skills, mm-hmm. a lot of people out there with legal and finance skills, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting, uh, recently I had Ian Clug, uh, chairman of Brisbane yeah. Marketing on the podcast, yeah. and uh, he also came from a, uh, a accounting background. Um, and a big part of his uh, staging of his board career was doing mm-hmm. a lot of uh, not-for-profit, voluntary-type yeah. uh, board yes. roles. 
that doesn't seem to have been a big part of your background, though. Oh, yes, it was. Sorry, I must okay. have missed that out right. on the way through. Okay, sure. Um, so while I was at EY, I had the opportunity to go on the Endeavour Foundation board. Yes. And I should, um, you know, um, that, that I was very lucky. Rick Dennis, the managing partner, then supported me on going on to it, even though it would be a significant amount of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that stage, Endeavour was probably, I think we rated 300 out of the 300th in size out of the non-ASX companies. Right. Uh, it needed to be run as a, a full-fledged company, and mm-hmm. I went on the board, ended up chairing that very quickly, uh, but was using that to demonstrate that I had uh, the board skills mm-hmm. as against the professional services sure. skills. Yep. Um, and I was lucky the way that that, that evolved. Um, it's now not only based in Queensland, it's uh, it's, like it's now in New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia, and, and has doubled its turnover in those six years. It mm. supports two times the number of people with a disability. Oh, it's a very significant business yeah. now, yeah. for sure. Okay, so Endeavour was uh, uh, your way of demonstrating your capacity to be yes. a successful non-executive director. Yes. So was that decision to join the Endeavour board with that strategy in mind at that point? Uh, only partially. Um, my youngest daughter has a disability. Okay. Uh, and one of the reasons for joining Endeavour particularly was to learn more about the disability sector and how we'd eventually plan for her future. Mm-hmm. Um, so I thought, well, if I was giving her as a board member, then I'd mm. also be learning. Sure. And so you mentioned at the beginning of this conversation, you've recently stepped down as a chair. Yes. So I, I suppose that that opens up some interesting questions around, I mean, how do you know when your contribution has reached its um, fulfillment and it's time to make way for new blood? So I think when you start defending the changes. Right. So Endeavour has gone through significant change. Yes. Um, And I'm not saying that those, I would like to believe that those changes were, were valid and almost all of them were, I would hope. But when you become a little proprietor about your defence of some of those changes, you've got to check yourself as to whether you're defending them because you implemented them mm-hmm. or because they should be there. Mm-hmm. And that's a time to consider just where your balance and independence is. Right. And is that some uh, piece of uh, learning you've developed for yourself or had somebody given you that advice in the past? Yeah, my grandfather. All oh, right. Gave, yeah, he, he would only ever go on... Uh, a board or a committee for so long right because his argument was you end up defending what you've done yeah you go on it to do something because it needs something and the danger is uh, you end up defending it i was also lucky enough just before i left christchurch to uh, end up chairing a, a boys school about the same size as uh, brisbane boys college okay uh, st andrews college there we it was in a state of hiatus because the headmaster wanted to create a senior school and take it co-ed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I ended up being the compromise old boy candidate, um, and I did that for three or four years, um, and that was also a learning point in terms. So we'd created huge change by doing that. Mm-hmm. Uh, some people say that I got shipped to Australia just like the convicts from <laughs> England. Um, <laughs> for your but, sins. <laughs> yes, for my sins. But... You recognise that having created that significant change, people needed to refine what you'd done. Yes. Significant change, you don't get it all right. Right. Yeah. And so you um, were saying that uh, you're in the fortunate position now that board opportunities are coming to you. You're not having to chase them down. So, um, uh, and more recently, uh, well, 
subsequent to exiting your EY role, the Cardno board opportunity came about. Yes. So tell us a little bit about that. Um, yeah, the, well, the Cardno, I knew the people on the Cardno board and they traditionally did an executive search for, um, for board members. Mm-hmm. They were looking for a staged implement or new, two new directors. Mm-hmm. When they had completed the first one, uh, they were then about to start the second and they said, and I wasn't uh, appropriate for their first search. They looked at the list of names and said, well, we've got a list of names. Um, and someone put my name up and they said, well, we've got add them into the list and then have a think about it and see mm-hmm. where, where it comes. And that's how that one came about. Mm-hmm. And what were some of the things that, uh, uh, as a member of the board, you contributed to at Cardinal during that period that you're most proud of? Sure. Um, Probably the wanting to instill into them the professional services discipline that I learnt in the accounting professions mm-hmm. into the engineering services. The similarities were amazing. Mm-hmm. Uh, we did a, um, if you like, a timeline of the different uh, roll-up of different professional services and said the accounting firms are out front, they've done the most, investment banks are probably second, engineering firms are probably poor third and mm-hmm. lawyers are a very distant fourth right however when you look at it it's it's about time it's about cross-selling mm-hmm. uh, when you went to the management conferences for Cardinal, I sat there and thought the first one I went to I thought I could be at a Deloitte or EY conference right it was the same issues same sure. solutions yeah yeah mm. And I mean, I look at those boards uh, and I look at those industries. So, for example, the disability sector uh, with NDIS uh, creating massive change and a lot of fear within that space uh, and within the engineering services sector, particularly with uh, the resources sector in Australia you know, being in a free fall. And uh, you must have had to develop a, a very strong ability to deal with uh, a lot of stress and uh, to help to guide these organisations through periods of massive disruption and yeah. and uh, a lot of uh, emotional um, heat there must have been mm. in those businesses. How, yeah. how did you deal with that? Yeah, if I deal with the NDIS one first because it's not complete. Sure. Um, you know, there's the disruption in those organisations is still to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, some people know it's coming, some don't. I think we probably rather naively approached it initially in terms of we said, well, we've promoted NDIS. It's a much better outcome for people with a disability. Australia ranks 27 out of 28 in the OECD countries, how it treats people with a disability. This is going to at least take it into maybe the top quartile. Mm -hmm. Therefore, our clients who are really, if you like, who we work for, Mm -hmm. or our shareholders, are going to be better off, even if we as an organisation struggle as a consequence of that. Yeah. So we were saying if someone can do our job better and more efficiently, then we'll take our capital and, and go and use it somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Just to interrupt for a moment, yep. for those people who are listening who aren't familiar with NDIS, um, perhaps just quickly explain that. Sure. So NDIS is the transformation in the disability sector from a grant-based inadequate funded system where organisations are given some money and asked to go away and fix the problem, of which they'll get about a third of the resourcing that's required, to a user-based system where the there will be an assessment of the person with the disability. They will then be given a list of services that they could access. 
they then go to the service providers and say, okay, I need you to come in and provide home help. Somebody who's in a wheelchair, I need showering five mm-hmm. times a week. So I need someone to come in and do home care and, and shower me five times a week. Mm-hmm. So it's going to transform the organization from a very dedicated bunch of volunteers doing what they can with inadequate resources to a client-based, client-centric mm. uh, service model. So as I understand it, suddenly the person with a disability has choice as to yes. who the provider is. So the traditional not-for-profits need to become far more customer-centric in order to maintain their business. That's correct. And you'll see a lot of new entrants coming into the yes. space, the traditional facility management and uh hospitality service yep. type businesses who suddenly see it as quite a commercial space to play. Yes. Right. And the UK experience uh, that went through, they changed who could provide the services rather mm. than the model. They always had a model that they someone should provide the services. It went from a 75-25 not for, uh, NGO for-profit split to a 75-25. Mm-hmm. So that's the potential disruption in the, in the sector. Sure. What I was going to lead on to, that was a little naive because we have all these people working for us and who are not well paid, who are very dedicated to their clients and sector. And that was a approach that on reflection, we needed to go back and we're reworking and saying, we need to take our whole organisation with us on this journey. Mm-hmm. So that's, you asked what kept, or really what kept me awake at night. Yeah. Uh, and that, that's the big issue, I think, for those, for that sector. Yeah, I, I suppose my question is more uh, in these situations, uh, Endeavour dealing with mm. NDIS, Cardno dealing with uh, a market that was yeah. becoming extremely challenged. Uh, the executive and the CEO, mm. no doubt, uh, have got a lot of anxiety and, and uh, fear about the future. Yeah. Part of the role of being on the board is to create some stability and... Sure. and uh, and some vision about how do we guide our way to safer waters. How, how did you uh, influence um, through your skills um, successful outcomes in that regard? The, the main one is the appointment of the CEO. Mm-hmm. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, you can influence the organisation very minimally as a board member. Mm-hmm. Uh, where you do have your significant influence is appointment of or you appoint the CEO, you support the CEO, and you fire the CEO. Mm-hmm. Rather sadly, you hope you don't do a lot of the last one. Sure. Uh, and if you get that wrong, you need to go back and reassess it. Um, so with Endeavour, we were very fortunate. We had a, a great guy uh, leading the organisation. Uh, with Cardinal, we actually went through, as you will see, uh, some changes at the CEO level. I think they've already been announced, those changes. Yes. Um, so now there's an executive team which is responding to those challenges mm-hmm. under, that I believe understand those challenges mm-hmm. and responding to them. Mm. Um, okay. And uh, at what point did UQ uh, happen? UQ, you, uh, UQ happened actually while I was still at EY. Okay. Uh, um, I'd done a lot of work at different stages with John Story and I got mm-hmm. the call from him saying, would I be interested in going on the Senate? Mm-hmm. I thought, oh. Yeah, that could be interesting. I've always liked being involved in with uh, the university. I'm actually an adjunct professor at uh, Business Economics and Law School mm-hmm. as well. I thought, yeah, that would be good. Um, 
then a week later he phoned up and he said, oh, Grant, we'd like you to chair the risk committee. It's a right. bit behind the times. I said, thanks, John. I, I see why you did this as a two-staged approach. Right. Yeah, so that's how that came about. Uh-huh. And does that take up a large amount of your time? Yes, it's it's a full, it's, uh, I'd put it equivalent of a full-time board role, if not a little more. Right. So today uh, you've got essentially three significant board roles. What's your view in terms of what is feasible for somebody to have in terms of a portfolio and give the appropriate amount of attention? Do you have a fixed view on how many boards that would be? No, I, I don't, because it depends on the nature and size of the companies. Um, I like to think that the the smaller the company will take up a lot of your time. Mm-hmm. Uh, the larger mid-sized companies will have the structures in place that you are effectively, your major issue is say hiring the CEO, reflecting on their strategy and ensuring that the strategy is being implemented. Uh, then you get to significantly larger companies, which I'm not on, like the banks, mm-hmm. where you actually have a the time commitment is travel as well as sure. actual board matters. Mm-hmm. Uh, financial services, and so again, it depends on the nature of it. Um, financial services, there's a lot more compliance and risk work mm-hmm. than there are on, say, a, an industrial company. So no, I, I don't have a fixed role on. I, sometimes I get told that oh, you look like you're busy, Grant. I just say, well, I used to work in the transaction business. I'm not working as hard as I used to. Right. And do you miss uh, the uh, the thrill of being that busy or are you quite happy with your lot in life? Sometimes, now? and then I get happy with it again. Right. Okay. Yeah, when, when you are working through uh, a transaction and you realise that you're going to go off the call at 10 o'clock at night and they're going to keep working. Right. Think, yeah, there's, you just got... Grown through that stage, sure. I would say. Okay. Yeah. And so looking forward now uh, into the mm. future, um, where would you say you'd like to see your board career move to over the next five to ten years? Sure. Um, really doing what I'm doing at the moment. Uh, the I'll, My term at the university will expire in, in a couple of years and I'll uh-huh. need to decide whether to stay on. I don't know whether I will or not. Um, I have another couple of opportunities with ASX listed companies, so I enjoy that. Uh, I enjoy bringing my market experience to bear on those. Mm-hmm. So probably continuing to do what I do, I enjoy the mix. Um, I think I'm incredibly lucky with the mix of companies that I have, and uh, I'll go back to paying the tribute to Frank Haley on that. He he talked about the need to have a balance in your portfolio yep. of different types of companies. Mm-hmm. Um, be involved with the the leadership and education things like I'm, I'm proud to be on the AICD State Council mm-hmm. uh, and really the Senate is also like that so sure you're in the thought leadership process you might have gone past actually developing the thoughts yourself but it's enjoyable being being part of it and, mm. and govern in a governance role mm. and uh, is part of your involvement with AICD to mentor and foster some of the emerging yep. board talent yes Okay. Yeah. And what's your perspective on, I mean, diversity has been a pretty hot topic for a while. Sure. Uh, uh, obviously, that's one um, driver in terms of uh, the future boards. Um, but what, what are some of the other uh, critical factors that need to be addressed in order to ensure our boards remain vital and successful? Yeah, I, and we need to embrace diversity a lot more than what we do at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, the... We're only really focused on gender diversity at the moment, mm. uh, but then that probably reflects a little bit of maybe um, 
uh, Brisbane community, but mm-hmm. we need to reflect on that and, and consider whether it needs a uh, difference. I've gone on, just gone on to the diversity um, subcommittee at the uh, at UQ, which I'm hoping to gain more insights into. Um, we need to be paying going to gender. Uh, it's just disgraceful the difference in pay rates. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a, just bad, mm-hmm. and we need to be getting more discipline around that. I think getting more discipline around that will elevate more women up into senior management roles because the, the evaluation process will become. Uh, a lot more structured, a lot mm-hmm. more equitable. My experience with women on boards is that they are very high performers. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the uh, defences of appointing a quota or greater number of women to boards is, well, there aren't enough in senior management positions. That's an argument that sounds right, but I think when you dissect it further, what you find is that the women who are in senior executive positions are actually outstanding people because they have got there in spite of Mm -hmm. the gender bias so therefore while they might be a smaller number they're very very talented people Mm -hmm. and therefore we should be dragging more out of those ranks onto boards Mm, it's interesting uh uh i've made this comment uh, to another um, a lady who's on the podcast a few weeks ago i went to a diversity debate and uh I was in a room where it was almost it was 95 women to five guys at yeah. the, uh, and there was a lot of heat around this uh, glass ceiling and, and so on. I went back and I analysed the previous four C-suite roles that we'd recruited, mm. three of which were in the not-for-profit sector and I looked at every single applicant or person who came to the table on that and out of literally hundreds and hundreds, uh, there were only 7% of the applications were from women. And I think that uh, there needs to be a lot more done to encourage women to actually put themselves out there. Uh, Because I know from a recruitment point of view, my client will almost always say, we'd love a female. So there is a genuine appetite uh, uh, to see women take these very senior roles. And women need to uh, have some role models who say to them, it's all right to actually apply for jobs that you feel are a bit outside your comfort yes. zone. Um, and that's why I'm hoping to have a much greater representation of yeah. women on the podcast, yeah. those who can actually uh, uh, demonstrate what is possible. So um, the people who are listening to this podcast, many of whom uh, are either in C-suite roles and looking to move into a portfolio career or are even earlier in their career, some of the skills that have enabled you to achieve what you have, obviously, one is you've got to be good at your day job. Mm-hmm. Uh, two, networking and a strategic orientation towards networking has been very yes. important for you. What are, what are some of the other things? Um, they're, they're obviously the three important ones. Uh, and then creating, deliberately sitting down and creating your own personal brand. Right. Uh, one of the other insights I got, which I wasn't lucky enough to go and do the course, but someone who came back from the Harvard Professional Services told me that you can get a 30% premium in professional services if you have a personal brand as against if you don't. Now, I don't know whether that's right or not, but I looked at that and thought, so if I spend 20% of my time improving my personal brand, I'm actually on a winner. Mm. That's, um, I mean, personal brand's getting a lot of yeah. airtime at the moment. It's a bit of a hot yeah. uh, topic. What, what does that mean to you? It means doing the first three things, uh, but having it, understanding it and taking it. So you need to be doing your day job well, obviously. Yeah. Um, you need to be networking. Mm-hmm. 
and and you need to understand the value that you bring to things so when i say doing your day job understanding what your day job really is rather than just being an accountant that you yeah. help people yep um, and and picking that up and, and uh, the other thing is that the more you help other people, the more people will help you. Right. Okay. So that uh, this idea of paying it forward yeah. is uh, is an important part of your personal brand. Yes. Okay. So I, I would have two to three coffees a week with people who are looking to do things. Now, some of those come back. Uh, most fall by the wayside, but mm-hmm. I, I always take the first call, and I don't think I've not done a first call with someone's said they want to catch up with me to talk about something. Right. Okay. Um, that's interesting. And so I imagine that you would get many, many people wanting some of your time and advice. Uh, how do you make a decision as to those that are, you want to and can help versus others? Um, I don't get that many, many, which is don't fortunate. Okay. Um, actually, two to three a week is not right. It would be one a week, I would think. Okay. Um, the... Yeah, the people who have the courage to do it, typically, you know, if they have the courage to do it. Right. Uh, and you, you find out in that first, I probably only have had one person who's become a pest. So when you say the courage, the courage to actually reach out yes. and say, can you help me? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, um, I've been running a workshop for two years called Always Stand Out, yeah. and I've written a book called Uncover the Hidden Job yeah. Market, and that is exactly what I talk about. Yeah. Is that... We love to help people, yeah. and so um, it amazes me people who are driving big businesses with massive remits and extremely competently, mm. and yet they have this reticence to actually reach out to a stranger mm. and say, hey, can I buy mm. you a cup of coffee? I'd like mm. some advice. Mm. So um, for people listening in, you've heard it from the uh, horse's mouth here, uh, what an important thing it is to do. Yeah. And so is that a part of even where you are now? Are you reaching out to those uh, that you still have aspirations to, uh, you know, achieve in terms of your own career. Oh yes, right. So, what would be some examples of that? I, I, w- I wouldn't say who it is, but um, if I go to Sydney or Melbourne, I've usually got a list of people that I contact beforehand mm-hmm. and, and try and set up in time. Sometimes mm-hmm. you can see them, sometimes you can't. Yeah, uh, I'm not as active as my eighty list that sure. I used to have, uh, probably because of the timing of where I'm at at this point in time. Yep. Uh, but no, I, yeah, it's it's sorting out who and and the chemistry has to work. Mm-hmm. But Queensland and Brisbane has been incredibly kind, I, I believe. Um, kind to you, yes, right. Yeah. So I came here twenty two, twenty three years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, learned under Frank Haley what I should be doing. Tried to apply it, and and now I don't have a good government network, but I have a very good private sector network. And all of those people have always had the time. So you know, I named Martin Greenwood and there's a whole pile of them. I pulled him out because I don't, I'm not sure why I pulled you out, Martin. <laughs> um, but those people have always been kind in terms of meeting you yeah. and catching up with you. And the people that you're reaching out to when you go to Sydney and Melbourne, mm-hmm. would you say that in the majority of instances they are also happy to meet with you and, yes. and invest in you? Yeah. Yeah, well, that's excellent. I, yeah. um, it's great to hear you yeah. saying that. Yeah. Um, uh, because more people need to learn that that's yeah. a good thing to do. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm still surprised at some of the people in Sydney that I've got on my um, email list. Right. You know, I look at it and think, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> How do I know these people? Yeah, well, no, I, 
I look at what they're doing and the right. boards they're on. And sure. Think, yeah. There's some very impressive people out there, isn't yeah. there? That's great. And uh, you've uh, retired from your full-time professional role. You're still mm-hmm. busy with uh, uh, a number of uh, boards, etc. But what are the other things that you do to keep you grounded? And uh, and what's the what does your private recreational life look like? Uh, well, I'm a known cyclist. All right. Yes. So I, I try to ride three to four times a week. Um, a two, mammal. Pardon? A yeah, mammal. A mammal. Yeah, I've been a mammal for 20-odd years now. So. Right. I tell the joke that um, I bought the Lycra and, and my wife found it in the wardrobe, so then I had to go and get a bike, but it didn't actually happen <laughs> like that. Um, no, the, that I also do uh, consulting with a couple of smaller companies yes. on a part-time basis, okay. which I fit around the other. They're good because I can fit them around the diary times of the, of the bigger boards. Right. Yeah, so, yeah, I, I would say I'm probably I'm not working the six days a week I used to when I was a partner, but I'm probably... I'm still over five. Right. And you've been married for over 40 years. I have indeed. So I'm sure you've you've got some good things you can teach people about how to keep a marriage together that long as well. Well, yeah, I'm not sure my wife would say that I could. (laughs) 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 I think the credit probably goes to her. Um, Yeah, I've I've been incredibly lucky with my relationship with Mary. It's been fabulous. She's been very supportive and... um, yeah. And three and grown daughters. And three grown daughters, all of whom I'm very proud of, all who do very different things. Um, yeah, we're very lucky. And how do you, when you look at them, uh, probably in the early stages of their career mm-hmm. and their mindset in terms of what's possible for them as compared to uh, people of our generation, mm-hmm. what are the big differences you notice? Um I think they, they've always been, well, particularly the older two, the younger one has a disability, but the older two, uh, we encouraged them when they went to university to be comfortable with doing a first degree and then doing a second one. Okay. Um, which they both did. Right. Uh, and and also, um, I, being uh, my wife has always been pushing, or has convinced them one can do anything. Right. You know, just get over it, Grant, and go right. and stand in the corner. Yeah. Um, so you know, we bought it. We got a male dog to get some balance into the right. house. No, that's not that's not very fair. <laughs> the um, yeah, no, and yeah, we just encourage them to keep doing what they want to do. That they mm-hmm. can do anything. Um, I would say that the my wife and and the older two girls are very ardent feminists, mm-hmm. which um, keeps my gender balance right. It's very easy to make a mistake. Okay, <laughs> at home, uh-huh. uh, which they, they but they're very good at because it, it gives, adds something to my life. Oh, good. Oh, that's great. Well, um, I know that you've got uh, some other engagements today, yeah. so I really appreciate your time. Before we just wrap up, hmm. is there anything you'd like to just add or um, or leave the listeners with uh, before we end the conversation? No, I'd, I'd say um, the main thing is yeah, network, uh, look around. You probably look at it as a, as a single transaction when you go out to be a NED, whereas in fact it's multiple transactions. So by that I mean you don't know who's going to be ringing who and where your name would come up. Mm-hmm. So work the whole field. Mm-hmm. Um, try and be known. You don't have to be best buddies with everyone. Not everyone will be necessarily your referee, but if they know you or know of you, then you have a, you have a much better chance. Mm-hmm. Once again, coming back to this whole idea of your personal brand yeah. uh, enabling you to be recommended with confidence. Yes. Right. Okay. Great advice. Yeah. Well, thanks and okay. uh, have an excellent afternoon. Thanks, Richard. Okay. Cheers. Bye.
Well, I have to say that that discussion with Grant contained absolute gold. And if you're an aspiring non-executive director, what Grant had to say about the methodical and highly thought through strategy that he implemented to build relationships with people of influence to create the opportunity for him to commence and grow his board career was remarkable. And I think that for people to go away and literally just implement what Grant discussed, you will see amazing returns in terms of how quickly you can accelerate your career. I found it fascinating and I am very, very pleased to have had the opportunity to talk to Grant just so that he could talk about that particular attribute of his professional background, which I was not familiar with prior to the conversation. So I hope you received great benefit from that discussion, and I look forward to having you along for future Aratay podcasts and other guests who can literally open up opportunities to understand practical tips that you can implement to accelerate your career. In the meantime, have a fantastic day.